thought I'd bring them back, you know. Great to see you guys. You guys excited to be here tonight? All right. Love the energy. It's uh, going to be a lot of fun tonight, I think. Let's begin with this. 86,400 is uh, the number I want to begin with tonight. 86,400. Um, it is not the circumference to the sun. I wouldn't even know what that is or I uh, wouldn't even know how to figure that out. Um, maybe like radius divided by diameter times 3.14 or something. But 86,400 is the amount of seconds that are in a day. 86,400 seconds. It's crazy to think that there's 86,000 seconds that go by every day. And if I were to snap 86,000 times, like my fingers would literally fall off. You know, it would be a pretty incredible sight to see. Uh, for any of you that are close to me or you have uh, conversations with me or you've been here a while, you know that there's a resounding theme that's on my heart. And that is this profound sense of urgency. Uh, the recognition that my, my life is uh, but, a, but a breath, but a mist. Uh, we're here for such a short amount of time. And there's this longing in me um, to use every single one of those seconds. If I'm sleeping, then, then it's intentional. And you're like, well, what, what do you mean? It, it's, I'm getting rest so that I can wake up and, and love God and be on mission, you see. And, and when I wake, the gas stations that I go to and the places that I hang with and the people that I conversate with, is it possible that every one of those 86,400 seconds could be used intentionally? In reference to our conversation tonight, uh, let me share this with you. It's unbelievable to think that of those 86,400 seconds, the amount of times every day that you and I have an opportunity to compromise. It's unbelievable when you start thinking of all of those moments, of all of those seconds, the amount of times every day that you have an opportunity to compromise. Will I give in or will I stand strong? You've already had hundreds of those today. Isn't that just heavy? As I've been thinking about that the last week or so, I've just sat in my office many times just weighed down with the reality of my own wretchedness apart from Christ. Like I will in and of myself of those hundred opportunities apart from Jesus just compromise and compromise and compromise. What about you? How would you say your day uh, has been classified? Uh, filled with a bunch of uh, standing strong, standing firm, or a whole bunch of compromise? A whole bunch of gossip, a whole bunch of judgment, a whole bunch of envy, a whole bunch of lust, a whole bunch of sexually charged relationship. What has your day been like? Now, if you're just joining us, this is a very pertinent conversation to where we're at. First slide, my four words. Uh, last week, we ended with these four words. Uh, just in and of themselves, with no contextual understanding, they seem like an interesting choice of four words. But let me explain. We're studying Daniel. Uh, any Daniel fans here so far? Great for the four of us and the five, the extra one at the end there. Uh, we're pretty excited about it. Um, I I've, I've grown a great affection for Daniel and the biggest thing before I recap a little bit is just, it's much more than a fiery furnace and a lion's den. And I, I can't reiterate more. I grew up with Daniel on a felt board in Sunday school. And as great as the felt boards are for fun time, it, it's way more than that. And Daniel's character is much deeper than that. And last week we saw the drama of the story unfold. The Babylonian Empire heads to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar desires to take over the world. And Jerusalem is in his path. And instead of just coming in and wiping it out, just smoking it off the face of the planet, he decides to take 50 to 75 youths, 
that's a weird word to say, children, boys, 14 to 17 year old, with him. His plan is to take them from Jerusalem and to grab them and pull them into Babylonian culture until he returns in 597. So from 605 to 597, these youths are going to be going through a brainwashing process. And this was, the, this was the journey for Nebuchadnezzar. His first plan was to separate them. So he was going to take these 50 to 75, and he was going to separate them from all of their family, all of their relationships, all of their culture, pull them out, and completely rid of all of who they once were. The second thing he was going to do is he was going to re-educate them in Chaldean education. I told you last week, magic, sorcery, and glassmaking, right? Like that was the, that was the, uh, the educational process of the Chaldeans, okay? Uh, it's, it's synonymous for Babylonian Empire, so just so you know, I'll say both of those uh, in unison tonight. So re-educate. Give them a new education so that everything that they had learned as a Jew all of a sudden would take on new meaning and new, con- uh, new context. The third thing Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do was obligate them to himself. So here, have some of my food. I'm a king, and it's good. Like, we're eating prime rib tonight, right? Like, not hot dogs. As great as a ballpark hot dog is, trust me, it's nowhere near like prime rib. Any prime rib fans? Money. Okay, the three of us. Good, right? And his last plan was to, um, to, to confuse them. And you remember uh, how he was going to do this. They had four names, the four characters that we're really focusing on. And uh, all of their names had to do with the Jewish God, Yahweh, uh, our God. And uh, what they did is, is he gave them all new names. And all four of these names represented not their, not their God, but rather the God of Nebuchadnezzar, whose name was Marduk. And so this was his plan. Brainwash. Take these 50 to 75, all growing up in Jewish culture and context, all having an understanding of who God is, pull them out, set them in a new culture, and brainwash them. Why? So that when he comes back in 597 and he deports all of the Jews, there's a whole bunch of people that are Jews saying, this Nebi, like he's not too bad, actually. In fact, he treats us well. He gives us his food. He protects us. He takes care of us. Uh, his gods aren't too bad at all. There's like three million of them, right? Like we can't even name them. There's so many of them, but, but it's, it's pretty cool. That's his plan. So the drama of the story is set. So now the only question is, well, what will happen? What will happen with Daniel and his friends and these 75, they will have some moments, compromise or not, stand strong or not, give in or not. And that's where we're at tonight. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, my friends. We'll finish uh, the book of Daniel, or the, the, rather the first chapter of Daniel tonight. Uh, this will be the most the text that we will have studied in literally two and a half years. We're going from verse 8 to 21 tonight. We'll only be here for four hours, so good luck with that. I'm just kidding. It'll only be an hour and a half or so uh, total for the sermon. All right, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 is where we're beginning. Are you there? Say I'm there. Compromise or not, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. But Daniel... So here we see, listen, here we see Daniel at this moment of compromise or not. And what the scripture says is Daniel will not give in. Listen, here's the crazy interesting thing. This one decision, the rest of this book of Daniel is written about. It all starts here. This is the moment. From this point on in his life, 
the significant point in his life, everything is hinging on what happens here. And it's crazy then to think that every second matters. And the thing that has been impressed on my heart is who are we to say what moments in God's sovereign plan are significant or not? Who are we to say, who are we to discern in God's great, majestic, sovereign plan which moments will like define us or not define us? It didn't matter. For Daniel, he comes to this point in his life where everything was building and in this one moment of compromise or not, he resolves in himself to not defile himself. That's why every second matters. Because who knows what conversation is absolutely critical. Who knows what relationship or what restaurant journey or that one conversation with the waitress or with the gas, whatever it is. We're not to say. All we're to do is to live every second like it matters. Like in God's sovereign plan, we can be used, church. Amen? This is the picture of this. Daniel was ready and he resolves to not defile himself. But who's Daniel? Let's quick reminder. All estimations say at this point he's 15. 15 years old. He's a but a wee lad. And what he does here is he's going to make a stand as a wee lad, as a Jew, against literally one of the most powerful people in the world. This 15-year-old boy is going to look in the face of Nebuchadnezzar and say, I will not eat your food. But why? Why does he not want to eat it? It's a great question, right? Like, we need to answer this. Is it because Daniel just doesn't like prime rib? Right? Is, it, is there other reasons? I think there's three, primary, uh, primarily. Uh, the first is this. Uh, the, the food in Babylon, not kosher, okay? So I don't have time to explain what's kosher or not, but, but it, as a Jew, you eat kosher food, okay? And the, the Babylonian culture, their food wouldn't have been kosher, and so that strikes a chord in Daniel. But the bigger thing is that Listen, as a king in Babylonian culture, all of your food is prepared. And listen, it's taken to an altar of the gods, and it's offered to the gods. And the gods can eat whatever they want of it. Uh, since those gods aren't real, I would love to see, like, how they talk about the fact that none of the food ever gets eaten, right? Like, the cook is whole, like, the cook must be, and they, they just keep killing cooks, right? Because none of this food is eaten. And every once in a while, they just hide so, like, the pelicans can come in, you know, and just take it so they eventually can rid of it, you know? But, but, but the food's offered to the idols, uh, to the gods. And then it's brought back to the king, and, the, and what's left of the king is considered, like, okay, so here's, here's the kingly food. Um, it goes against the word of God. Daniel knows right away, to eat food that's been offered to idols I want nothing to do with it, but there's more. In ancient Near East times, a meal, as it does today often, implies friendship. And so in Daniel's mind, it's not kosher. It's been offered to idols, but to eat of the king's food, to partake in his food, and to sit there and w would be to say that I need Nebuchadnezzar's food to survive. It would be claiming friendship with Nebuchadnezzar. It would be saying, this king, I need him to feed me, and Daniel is not having it. And so a 15, 16-year-old boy resolves in his heart to not defile himself, takes a stand, I'm not going to do it. And so what happens next? Verse 9, 
excuse me, middle of verse 8. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, to allow him not to defile himself. Uh, what I love about this, too, and uh, I'm, I've known many Christians who love to take stands while wearing a, I'm going to make a, t- a stand t-shirt. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's them, it's all about the stand. Like, I, you know, I hate this, and I'm going to wear this shirt that says I hate it, and I'm holding eight picket signs that says I hate that, that, and you. But no, what does Daniel do here? He resolves in his heart not to defile himself, and it says he's, he's going to ask. Like, hey, is, like, I don't want to do this. And, and so check this out. Here's what he says to Ashpen is, uh, verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. We'll come back to that. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigns your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Fair enough, right? He's like, okay, if I, it's like guilty by association. I allow you not to eat the king's food. King finds out, ixnay with the upens day. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm done. Ashpenaz's head is off. But the scripture says what? God gave what? God gave favor, grace, blessed the stand, blessed the obedience. Because Ashpenaz could have responded with what? Instantly. Just at the hearing of it, you're gone. You're dead. You're a risk. I can't take you. But the biggest difference we see in the middle of this verse, what does Ashpenaz say? I what? I fear my Lord the what? The king. There's two different fears here. Ashpenaz fears Nebuchadnezzar, and ultimately Nebuchadnezzar fears, uh, fears Marduk. But Daniel fears one. Not culture, not himself, not his friends. He doesn't care. For him, the word of God, what God has communicated to be true and right and holy is all that matters right now to Daniel. I don't care about your culture. I don't care where I came from. I was kidnapped, but it matters not. The word of God stands supreme. Who God's character is, who he is, that's what I desire to follow. You fear Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar fears Marduk. I fear God. There's two different fears. We stand in a culture where there's a clear distinction of fears. A culture fears, fears itself, it fears a government, it fears culture itself. And our call is to fear one, one holy, true, good, righteous God. Now, I have uh, three kids, I mention them all the time, love them. Avery, my four-year-old, just turned four, is such a great blessing. And um, this is a little analogy to explain something. I often will uh, ask my little girl Avery to clean uh, the toy room. We have a toy room with lots of fun toys, as it were, and uh, one of my favorite toys in there is the little basketball hoop, because I, I can still rock, you know what I'm saying, like I'm, all right, yeah, and so uh, anyway, I asked Avery a few days ago, like, hey, babe, can you go, uh, can you go in and clean up, the, clean up the toy room, and kids are so smart, right, because uh, she goes in, and, and me and Dawson and the riffraff were hanging in the living room, and she takes like 10 minutes, so I'm thinking, like, this girl's, like, whipping out the Windex. You guys know what I'm saying? Because Windex cleans everything. You know, I mean, this, gr- this girl's, like, she's getting down in there. I mean, things are getting clean. She's going to work. And so after 10 minutes, I'm, I, like, come in the room, and I'm thinking to myself, like, this, this is going to be the most pristine-looking room I've ever seen. And basically what she's done is she's, like, come in and just scooted everything off to the side and, like, sat in the middle of the room to take time so that I thought she was actually cleaning. This crazy moment. I'm like, are you, like, you... You didn't do it. And what Avery said was this, but I worked hard. 
Um, so, so this is one of those moments where I really connect with. Because Daniel's like, I tried. God, I talked to Ashpenaz, right? Like I had a conversation with him. That whole like follow you, not compromise thing, I worked on that. So I went to the chief eunuch, said, hey, would it be all right with you if I don't eat uh, the food? Because I'm, I'm just, I'm not standing for that. I tried, God. It's over. Isn't it crazy to think that the premise of A for effort does not go scripturally? In fact, our efforts are meaningless outside of the power of Christ. But isn't it incredible to see obedience standing alone? My little girl didn't obey. She worked hard and she pushed the toys to the side, but she did not obey. I was clear. I said, hey, clean up the room. She didn't clean it up. She took her time. She tried hard. She made good effort and ultimately did not obey, therefore disobeyed, you see. Daniel's at another moment of compromise. Okay, I worked hard. I talked to Ashpenaz. Like, I've done my thing. This is going to get really, this is going to get even more hard from here. So, look, God, aren't you happy with me? Have you been there, friends? Right? Taken a few steps, done your thing, and then when you start to get a little bit of resistance, you're like, okay, that's good. I'm done now. Check, please. Check this out. Here's what Daniel does. Then Daniel said to the steward, verse 11, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given, ve- uh, given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. What does he do? He takes another step further. I'm not done with you, Ashpenaz. He goes to a lower-ranking official, right? To, to a steward, it says. And he goes, and what does he say? He doesn't ask him. He's already thought of the plan. Here's the plan. I'm going to present it. What do you think? And he puts it out there in a way where almost the guy cannot, like, cannot not respond. What does it show us? Daniel is really, really focused on obeying. And will do whatever it takes to obey. Nothing will stop his obedience here. He's not afraid of a king, not afraid of a culture. And at this point, they could kill him. It could be over. Could you imagine yourself, a 15, 16-year-old boy, making such a stand in the face of a world empire with death on the line, and you not give in for anything. In fact, you keep producing. In fact, you keep coming up with plans, though they seem halted. Interesting, isn't it? And so the steward says this. Uh, So he listened in verse 14 to them in this matter. Uh, So what's the plan? Uh, Daniel's plan is... Um, here's, here's the deal. Uh, you're going to give us vegetables, which the literal uh, Hebrew here is, uh, is poor food, okay? Uh, literally, like the food, like I consider vegetables sometimes poor. Like I just, I just, don't, any, I just don't like vegetables, honestly. Anyone else? My, ve- my vegetables, pepperoni. Anyone else, right? It's like I had some today, in fact. Telenia's Main Street's money, right? Little shameless plug there, right? Like veg- but, but he says, like, we're going to eat vegetables, you keep giving all the rest of these what? These Jews. We're only talking about four people here. What about the rest of these guys? What are they doing? Same cultural growing up. Same understanding of God and Yahweh. Same picture. All of the rest of them giving in. All of the rest of them just going for it. But it's interesting here to see this too. What happens? What does Daniel say he doesn't want? Put up my other four. Okay? 
Other four. And now, it's coming. It's going. Okay, there we go. Well, does he say anything about the separation? Anyone? No, he can't, right? He's like, send me back to Jerusalem. He can't do that. Like, he's there. He's in Babylon. Does he say anything about the re-education? Interesting, isn't it? Magic, sorcery, glassmaking, right? Does he say anything about the re-education? No, he does not. Why? So interesting. Daniel knows that all of this junk that will come in in the re-education, he can sift out the truth. Why? Because he is so hunkered in the word of God that he can quickly discern what's true and what's not. And ultimately what will happen is he'll become more learned in the culture and a little foreshadowing, we know that God's going to use this education to ultimately glorify God himself in, starting in chapter 2. Unbelievable stuff. He doesn't negate the education. I'm strong enough in my faith that you can teach me what you will, and I'll be able to sift the truth out. I really struggled with this going to a liberal arts college. Okay, Some of you university students will know what I'm saying. It's like the first time you sit in world religions that's taught by an, by a, an atheist. Okay? Like that... That was my world religions professor, an atheist. And so you're like sitting there, and I'm like, I'm fresh out of high school, okay? Small town USA, you know, like my parents, I was pretty sheltered. I had a curfew, right, 8 o'clock. And I'm like sitting there in class. And, and like this professor is just talking about all of, and in this moment, so tempted to compromise my belief systems. But because of my rooting, I was able to like hear this. And sift out and weed out the junk from some of the truth. Oh, so uh, X and Y, Z, God, that this religion says, and, and it, it's connected with this. Yeah, that, that's completely bunk because of all of this. And my God, unbelievable stuff. This is what he says. What does he do? He doesn't say anything about the confusion either, does he? He's like, you can call me whatever you want. I'm Daniel, though, right? Like, you can call me whatever, pigs in a blanket. It doesn't matter. I am Daniel, Right? It doesn't matter. What he does say something against, though, is the obligate piece. I will not be obligated to anyone but my God, and ultimately what you're asking me to do goes against the Scripture. And so he comes up with this plan. Give us vegetables, 10 days, and we'll see what happens. Uh, verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So they come back, and these folks who have been eating vegetables, the four, um, I don't know, the fatter in the flesh here isn't like they got pleasantly plump, okay? The, the picture here is that, is that they just looked better. Which, if you're eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine, I would imagine that diet would have been pretty good versus these guys who are eating clover leaves, only God could allow these four to appear better. And that is the story of Daniel's life. Only God. Only God. Only God. Only my God. The true God. The real God. So they come back, and everyone's checking out these guys, and these four look better. They, I mean, something about them, they're just gleaming. They look, they look right. And these others, they just, it, it looks different. God has had favor on Daniel in the face of world empire. And so verse 16, so the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Like the, it, a coup is about ready to go on, you know? 
Like these four were eating the, eating the little, like the leaves off, and these people were grubbing, and now it's, everyone's on vegetables, right? Like we're, we're taking out the vegetables. These guys had to be getting crazy, right? There had to be some tension in the room, but only God. Daniel has this moment, compromise or not, no compromise, and God blesses. Now, can we have a quick dialogue before we move on? No, no choice for you. Um, how does God bless obedience? In this case, it would appear you can take a stand against a world empire and there's no suffering that will incur, right? You can stand against, like if this is the definition of blessing obedience, then you can take a stand, not compromise against whatever and no suffering will occur. That's not what blessing obedience means. But God blesses obedience, and we see this all throughout the scriptures, even beginning in Deuteronomy. The picture of God blessing obedience is that somehow it glorifies him. And I want you to tuck that away, and we're going to get back there, okay? Verse 17. So as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God just bestows on them all of this understanding of the culture at 15 and 16. I mean, he is just feeding them with knowledge and truth and understanding, just pouring it out. And to Daniel it says, understanding in all visions and dreams, which is largely significant because this culture escalates that. So you can start to see now how God is setting up Daniel to rise in his leadership. Verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Now, okay, 15, 16, 17-year-old boys. And this is the first time we have scripturally where they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. Again, if you've seen Veggie Tales, like this is this is just ruined to some extent, right? Because you picture like a big pickle here, and it's like, right, it's just getting weird, right? Listen, world emperor, one of the top world leaders, fifty or seventy-five, kidnapped, brainwashed, tried to, and they're brought before this this man. Listen, can you picture it? Can you picture the gold? And the smells and the scene. Can you picture the throne? Can you picture this whole scene? Nebuchadnezzar, all of the power in the world, all of the fame. And here comes these humble servants of God. This picture is one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Daniel. Because you have these humble servants of God ushered in to someone who essentially thinks he's God. And the love of God is just hovering over these servants. And the one who sits in his throne doesn't sit in a throne at all. Crazy. Check this out. They brought him in front of uh, Nebuchadnezzar in verse 19. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. 
Now, to stand before the king is an ancient way of saying they serve the king. Three years worth now of training, re-education, eating vegetables, and three years worth of this. Which is significant how? Three years worth of opportunity to compromise. Are you kidding me? Three years. We, we just get such a small picture. This is three years of opportunity for Daniel to say, this is just getting tiring. All this eating green stuff, and I, I'm just tired of it. I'm just going to give in a little bit. No, it doesn't happen. He maintains the course, stands his ground, doesn't back down, looks in the face now of a world emperor, and that man looks at him, and they find him worthy to stand before the king, to serve him. Interesting. Can you picture this scene? These little Jewish boys all of a sudden being called upon by Nebuchadnezzar to serve him. Uh, So look at this. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, could you imagine that conversation? It becomes like this royal interview, right? So tell me about this, and how about this, and how about that? He found them ten times better. I don't, not sure how they figured this up, right? Ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. Verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, where did we start? What year? Come on, someone. What year are we starting in? 60 what? 605. Okay? And here in verse 21, we see the first year of King Cyrus. 6, or excuse me, 539. Daniel was in Babylon that long. And the rest of this story is going to be Daniel's life in this culture for his whole life. Now listen. I step back from all of this story. And it has done a massive work in me. And here's why. I step back from this text, this story of four men and all. And there's one thing that I just can't get out of my head. I just, it can't leave me. It literally woke me up earlier this morning than normal, all day long. Yeah, I just, I just been meditating. God, or God is truly giving grace on Daniel. And friends, listen, Daniel loves his God. Daniel just loves his God. He loves his God more than himself. He loves his God more than his opportunities. He loves his God more than any, he loves his God. Now, I've been asking myself, well, how do I know? What does that mean? How can you sit back and say, like, Daniel, man, he just loves his God. What does that look like? We need to look at three scriptures, and it's going to give us a lot of indication. First scripture here in uh, John 14, verse uh, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Which is tough, right? Because you see Daniel, and you're like, okay, he loves God, and why does, he, why does he love him? Well, it's evident because have you realized your words are meaningless? Have you realized we can sing 30 worship songs about anything in the world, and it can mean nothing if your life is a complete fallacy? It can mean nothing. They're just words that you're saying on a screen. Daniel, though, doesn't just say, I love God, I want to serve God. His life just backs it up. He reveals his love of the Lord, his understanding of the Scripture, his lack of compromise. The Word of God says this, and so for me, that's enough. 
And so I look at this text, though, and I struggle. Anyone else? Because I think I don't always keep his commandments. So what for us? Do we not love God? Well, First John says this. Next slide. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, a little bit of hope, right? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. But the scripture makes it clear that if I say I have no sin, then I'm, I'll, I deceive myself. So the Bible, the scripture, takes into account that even as a new creation, the theological term, even as a regenerated person, I'm going to sin. But, last slide, 1 John 5, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So I sat over my Bible yesterday morning and I just felt like God just kept asking me one question. And I was forced to really look at my life and answer honestly. All of these moments in our life, compromise or not, give in or not, lust or not, judge or not, gossip or not, live for culture or not, pride or not, all of these moments, hundreds every day, to compromise or to stand for something stronger. I finally feel like I have some perspective on what the question in that moment is. It's do you love me? Hundreds of moments of compromise potentially every day. And for the first time yesterday, in a potential moment of compromise, I heard the words, do you love me? Peter heard those words right before he was reinstated. Jesus said, do you, are you sure that you truly love me more than these? And Peter said, yes. He said, well, go feed my sheep then. Prove it. No, seriously. Do you love me more than these? Yes. Yes, Lord. I, okay. Go feed my lambs. All of these hundreds of moments of compromise, Daniel answers the question, do you love me? Yes, Lord. I love nothing else. I love no one else. I love you. I love your scriptures, and I'm meditating on them, and I do not want to go against them. You say be holy, for, for you are holy, and I desire that holiness. Okay, Mark, so what then was sin? Grace, church. The cross. Completely sufficient. The blood spilt from a Savior. Covering our many failures. But the cross is not to be taken advantage of. Grace is not to be abused. Grace is to bring us more in love with God. Do you see how that works? It's love and obedience, and when we fail through the blood of Christ, we fall deeper in love with a Savior. And so every day, all day, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. I will not back down. I will not be ashamed. No matter what they may say or culture may view me as, I must stand for you because you are the one true God. No Marduk, no Nebuchadnezzar, nothing else. You are the one true God. Now, 
what does this mean for us? This means that we reveal our love and our obedience. doesn't matter what you write in your journal, what song you sing, or how much you read your scriptures. Your love of God is revealed in your obedience. And it's not religious. It's just a whole bunch of folks who really believe that they cannot be separated from his love, and so all they can do is love him back with life. Uh, Peter came to Jesus and said this, you don't need to suffer. You don't need to suffer. There's no need for you to go to the cross. Remember what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. Uh, Satan in the desert when Jesus was there said, if you truly are the son of God, like, prove it, show yourself. Um, No, you don't understand. Like, I serve my father. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus said. Jesus had moment after moment after moment of compromise where he could give in, not suffer, not go to the cross. And he perfectly obeys so that you and I don't have to. And so on that dinner, he breaks the bread. And he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. And do this in remembrance of me. And may this broken body, my broken flesh, the sacrifice on a cross, May that remind you of the question, I love you. Do you love me? And he holds up the cup. And he says, this cup represents the blood that will be spilt on a cross, dripped down from a God-man. And he says, this cup represents the new covenant now. The old covenant was law, and the new covenant is grace. And so he says, take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And listen, one of those profound moments, compromise or not, Jesus dies, resurrects, so that you, listen, so that you and I can sit in this room tonight and answer, do you love me? Having an opportunity to respond been compromising, huh? Answering almost repetitively, no, I love you not. I'm speaking it. I write a lot in my journal. But my life reveals no love. Tonight, we repent. We turn from our sin. We give thanks in the forgiveness of the cross. And for believers in this room, as you respond and you come up and you take this meal, you're answering right now the question, do you love me? The opportunity is ours, church. And the question is before us. Let's pray. God, I don't want my words ever distract from the the depth of my desire to serve you. 
I speak on behalf of us as a community and say that we fail much. We compromise greatly. But God, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your sacrifice. And I pray that you would give us a desire not to be heroic like Daniel, for there is only one hero and that's you, but to realize that we communicate to you our love by obedience. God, call us tonight to simple obedience, to look in your scriptures and long just to follow you. Here we are, God, humble servants before your one true throne. So for those followers of Christ, you have an opportunity tonight to partake in this meal and respond.